Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and we've got a special episode for you today. I'm actually here with my coworker, Jimmy Chain. He leads product development in DevTools, and he also just got back from ECC in Paris, which I'm sure many of you were at, and I have brought him on today to sort of talk about some of the cool things that are happening in the crypto space right now that he gathered from being at ECC. And so welcome, Jimmy. Thank you for being here today. Hey, happy to be here. Yeah, ECC was a, a crazy week. So happy to, to share with everyone all the stuff that I've seen and all the takeaways I had. For sure. Yeah. So we chatted a little bit before this about some of the key takeaways that you're really excited about. And we'll dive into all of those. Before we do that, just want to get your take. Like overall, it, it sounds like it was an awesome conference, right? It was only three days. I think it was three days plus like three days of two or three days of like hackathon stuff. It feels like it was like two weeks or something based on like how much stuff was packed in. Yeah, definitely. So like any Ethereum conference, there's like, I guess like rings of like activity. So it's like you have, you know, like the main conference in the middle, all the different, you know, speakers and the product launches and those outside of it, you have like little hackathons that, that are happening. Of course, like people want to, to build and, and to collaborate with each other. And then you have all the like side events, I guess, of like, and that's, I think, where the majority of people are kind of bouncing around, you know, they didn't get tickets to the conference, they're just there socializing, collaborating, uh, talking about the future of, of finance. So it was definitely uh, a really packed, I guess, like five days in hindsight. But yeah, it felt like a lot more because every minute was just filled with activity. You went to the Bitcoin conference in Miami as well. How did this compare to the Bitcoin conference? In the core, like they're pretty similar in the sense of like, there's a main conference with with kind of like side events that a lot of people are bouncing around from. The main difference is like, you know, Bitcoin Miami was mainly talking about Bitcoin and its innovations. And it mainly had a lot of Bitcoiners there attending and, and talking about that space. And this was a, an Ethereum developer conference. And so a lot of the conversations were, you know, of course, revolving around Ethereum, but just broadly about DeFi, about NFTs, about DAOs and, and coordination and mechanism design. And, and so I, I would say if I, if I had to talk about like a, a difference between the two, you know, Bitcoin was a lot about just like the advancements of, of like proof of work and a store value of Bitcoin. And ECC was talking a lot about, you know, like how do we push the envelope of, of what Ethereum and, and what uh, decentralized finance and, and other smart contract platforms can really do for, you know, just like the world broadly and different use cases. Very cool. And then did you end up staying for the hackathon part after? Like, did you see any cool projects get built out? Yeah, definitely. I was pretty tired by the end of the week, but I did manage to go to the pitches for the hackathon. Yeah, there was some really, really cool stuff, uh, honestly, around like identity. And so how do you, one of my favorite projects that, that got second place in the hackathon uh, was this French team that built uh, basically like on-chain voting, but using zero-knowledge proofs. So you can kind of like obfuscate your vote as opposed to, you know, snapshot, which broadcasts your vote to whoever wants to see based on, you know, associated with their wallet address. 
Uh, and so pretty crazy stuff that, uh, you know, teams can build within 48 hours. Like that is not something easy to build at all. I think the team slept like maybe like <laughs> they said they slept one hour uh, in the weekend, but I think that might be an exaggeration because that would be absolutely absurd. I mean, as a non-technical person, I can't even wrap my mind around that. It sounds like a bunch of uh, shadowy super coder stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. We want to we want to get shirts for that. Uh, I think that would be kind of like a rallying cry. Yeah, for sure. One of my friends made a shadowy super coder NFT, like just minted it on OpenSea, but it's just like a, a, a little like graphic he drew up of a shadowy super coder as he pictures it. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, yeah, I'll send it to you. So let's dive into some of the cool stuff that's happening in the space. Do you want to just give us like a quick overview, like quick summary of if you had to summarize like the, the few main things that are, you know, like getting really big in the space that people should be paying attention to in the crypto space right now? Like what would those big things be? Yeah, definitely. So I would say the absolute biggest thing that folks are talking about right now, in, in my mind, would be uh, like identity and, and reputation. I think a lot of the really big blue chip protocols and really big thought leaders in the Ethereum community are, are thinking about this right now. Um, from Vitalik to Jimmy Ragosa, from Kleros uh, to Ave. And so that that for me was really striking as something that a lot of folks are, are trying to think about now that uh, at least the financial services has been slightly thought of. And, and now we can kind of expand beyond that, knowing that we have kind of like a built in economic design related to reputation, right? Of course, other timely things that people were talking about were um, MEV, you know, uh, minor extractable value within Ethereum L1, L2 staking. We had a lot of the rollups and a lot of the sidechain solutions show up and, and have conversations around, you know, how do we build sustainable scalability for Ethereum? We also had conversations about E2 merge, what that looked like in, ter in terms of moving to a proof of stake environment. We had people talking about uh, different EIPs, of course, 1559 is going to hit mainnet next week. We had EIP 3074, which is a, a big UX improvement uh, for Ethereum as well. So I, I think those are kind of like the two big ones. And then, of course, always a conversation around NFTs and, and social media and content broadly. I think that has been kind of hitting a second wave this year. Uh, you know, it was a really big explosion earlier this year, uh, kind of lulled down, but it, it's definitely picked back up with a lot of energy. So uh, I, I would say those are probably the three biggest things that I observed from the conference. Nice, nice. Okay, yeah. So I, I want to dive into that to each of those, but like especially to the identity piece because that's something that we talk about a lot at Unstoppable Domain. So it's just you know a top of mind all the time. Just to dive into that a little bit deeper. So I always say like your digital identity is like your full identity in the future. You know because as we move towards a more and more web first world, like whatever your identity is, is your digital identity. Like you basically spent all of your time digitally nowadays and even more so in the future. So what are like some aspects of a person's digital identity that, you know, like we're talking about here when we're talking about all these like different aspects? Yeah. So I think people are, at least from the conference, tackling uh, identity in different pieces because it just means so much. When we think about it from, you know, let's take the, the keynote talk from the conference, which is uh, Vitalik's talk in the second day. He talked about identity mainly around uh, the use case of logging in with Ethereum. And so, you know, how do you use your ETH address as kind of your universal uh, way to sign into any sort of Web3 application, have composable uh, information throughout those different decentralized applications, right? Whether it be 
you know, your, your content browsing history or, uh, you know, your, your private information, your content information, or of course your, your transactions in your, in your balance, uh, in your statement history. So that was kind of the, the way that he was thinking about it was like, okay, how do you have just like self-sovereign, self-custodied identity that is composable and you bring that data wherever you want and you can grant permission access to whatever application or whatever organization needs it and provides value to you in return. Another way that people were really tackling it was uh, anti-civil resistance. And so definitely a lot of talk about uh, proof of humanity. You know, also Vitalik briefly talked about um, in his talk but mainly kind of, you know, championed by Jimmy Regosa from Claros and, of course, Santiago, who, you know, leads Proof of Humanity and also leads the Universal Basic Income Crypto Initiative on top of it. So that's really big because for the first time through this protocol, you can actually relate an ETH address with a person. That's pretty powerful because, of course, you can protect yourself from things like bot attacks and you can actually have, you know, one person equals one vote when you look into DAO governance. That's pretty interesting as well. And you can do, of course, a bunch of really interesting things once you realize that an address equals one person, like what Santiago is doing with UBI, where you basically get universal basic income uh, after proving that you're a you know, human, right? Uh, and that you'd just be an actual person that would value or that would uh, get a lot of value from, from this UBI, UBI compensation. Uh, and then the last way that I saw it was uh, Stani from Ave talking about kind of like credit delegation. And so... His use case on reputation was a lot, or identity was a lot more around how do you build, I guess, on-chain trust so that people can get under-collateralized lending. Uh, and I think the novel way that they're tackling it right now is through uh, a product they call uh, credit delegation, where essentially reputation is built off-chain. And so people can essentially pool together their borrowing amount and actually give it to other accounts, right? And so from a protocol level, the risk is actually the same because you basically have a lot of people, uh, you basically still have the same collateralization amount. Uh, but from an off-chain perspective, people are trusting other organizations or other people uh, with that money. And I'm happy to talk a little bit more about the mechanics behind that. Uh, but that's really powerful because uh, eventually you could see a world where if people are you know, good, uh, you know, and good at paying off their credit delegation or just good at paying off their, their loans in general, they can get a reputational score uh, through some sort of on-chain token. And that can grant you even more under collateralized and, and hopefully eventually uncollateralized lending so that DeFi is a lot more competitive with the traditional finance base. Yeah, I was going to say, and all this is happening through DeFi, right? And not through the traditional financial system, because like with, you know, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, too, with other guests. But like a big problem with the traditional financial system is that there's human bias involved in every step of the process. And so if you want to go and get a loan to buy a new house, it doesn't just depend on your, you know, your proof of reputation, like the way that you just talked about it. Like, have you do you have a record of paying off loans on time? Like, how does that all of that look? But you have to, like, physically go into a bank and meet with the person that's going to give you the loan or not give you the loan and decide what your interest rate is. And there's this element of human bias that we cannot take out of the equation no matter what, because you're sitting in front of this person, they're looking at you, they see what you look like. And instantly, like judgments, certain judgments are going to be made. And everybody has inherent biases, unconscious biases. And I think the only way to really solve for that entirely is to replace humans and thus human bias with technology, which is, you know, these smart contracts that DeFi runs on. I do think that's super cool. I mean, that's obviously like a very powerful way that decentralized reputation can apply to. But 
are people also talking about other ways that like you can build your on-chain reputation, whether that's through almost like a proof of work or, you know, like contributing to DAOs, contributing to, to protocols and things like that to essentially build your on-chain resume through proving that you can do good work and not through, you know, like showing that like you have a degree from Harvard or that like you used to work on Wall Street or whatever. I know in this space broadly, that's something that a lot of folks are talking about in terms of you know, on-chain resume in terms of, you know, just broadly, how do we take away inherent human biases on, you know, people decisions or career development decisions? I would say from the conference perspective, there was not as much of a focus on that and definitely a lot more focus in kind of the three different use cases that uh, I outlined previously. Um, but when I think about like on-chain resume, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, uh, you know, DAO governance, right? Like you have a demonstrable record of, you know, how you participate in DAOs, at least from a voting perspective. I mean, of course, a lot of the contributions happen off-chain right now, literally in like Google Forms, which which needs to be, you know, eventually brought in on-chain, especially as uh, scaling becomes a lot more sustainable for, for the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, but I also think about, you know, what Brian's working on at, at Rabbit Hole, right? He talks about on-chain resume, all the time. And so um, I know these are these are definitely big problems that folks are solving for just haven't really seen a lot of focus on that. And in the past, you know, week or so, just because uh, it's a big problem space, like like we were talking about. So just a lot of different ways to chip at it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so going back to the identity piece, another question I had was around like, how we'll operate on social media. When we think about our identity on social media, obviously there's, you know, the the single sign-on problem where we don't have to, we no longer have to like have a separate username and password for Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of these things. We can just log in with our wallet or our ETH address or, you know, uh, domain or whatever. Um, and so that's pretty cool. But like what else was talked about with like social media? Because I, I feel like a lot of people are talking about like decentralized social media and um, what that's going to look like. So in terms of social media and decentralized social media, there were kind of two moments at the conference that really drove the conversation, at least for myself, around this um, around this topic. The first was, you know, again, Stani's talk. It was mainly around credit delegation, but you know, he had you know a few words to say around decentralized social media and actually Ave's interest in in building decentralized social media, which he you know, previously, uh, before he, we even came to ETHCC, he had kind of like a series of, of tweets teasing this. At a high level, there wasn't a lot of details they were sharing, but decentralized social media is really interesting because of immutable identity uh, and the composable data underneath it. And so you can bring, you know, your username, you can bring uh, your account to uh, basically a series of, of social medias that act as more or less as like a UI or UX experience that reads from your identity and actually pulls in information that you own into some sort of curated experience, right? And so right now when we look at Web2, you know, when I spend all my waking moments tweeting or I spend, you know, the hours uh, that I do putting together blog posts uh, for my Medium blog, uh, I'm basically handing the keys to those uh, those companies, right? I'm like, hey, like, you own this. You can uh, you can delete this whenever you want. You can do whatever you want with it. You know, for, for Medium, you know, maybe I'll get compensated, you know, a little bit, like literally fractions of pennies per view. Um, but that's that's pretty much the relationship I have with these platforms. And with a decentralized social media, it becomes a lot more uh, user driven in the sense that I know this is information I, I own. I give you access to read this information only within certain parameters. 
And of course, there's a financialization layer that you can add on top of it that's inherently baked into blockchain broadly. Uh, so that's really interesting. And I, I imagine we're going to see more developments from, from Aave in the coming, honestly, like the weeks, <laughs> the coming weeks, uh, because they just move so quickly. We're going to see a lot of kind of interest and, and movement to decentralize social media um, and having a blue chip protocol like Aave, like Stani and Jordan in front of it. It's just going to be uh, really interesting to see. So that was kind of the first moment that brought in a lot of conversation. Uh, the second moment was at the hackathon. Actually, there were a few projects that were pretty interested in creating on-chain social media, being able to build on these new scaling solutions, makes it a lot easier to mint uh, content and uh, add it to some sort of arbitrary identity and be able to curate experience to, to view it. And so, you know, a couple come to mind, but they basically look like a version of, you know, Twitter, blogging, uh, Instagram, um, you know, Facebook, what have you. Uh, but it was really interesting because, uh, again, there was that built-in kind of financialization layer. And so you earn tokens through your engagement, you know, that others give you or your engagement with other people's platforms. And, you know, I think there's an interesting way for us to actually tweak this mechanism design so that, you know, engagement becomes a lot more high quality, right? And so we're starting to filter away from, uh, you know, spam or, or some sort of like uh, impression farming, and actually have authentic conversation. Uh, and so that's pretty interesting. And now that I think about it, that was actually a, a, a small slide on a Vitalik's talk as well about decentralized social media. And he actually showed, uh, he actually showed some screenshots of, of people uh, responding to his tweets on, on Twitter. And it was like, when moon or, Hey man, like check out this random project. Right. And he was like, Hey, like we could do better than this. Right. Like there could be a way for us to, have gated conversations, right? DAO-based or token-based gated conversations. One of the most popular social media apps on in China right now is called Billy Billy, and it's basically like Reddit, but you have to answer like it's really really hard quiz in order to actually participate in the community. And so, imagine if you go to R slash Harry Potter and you had to you know answer like fifty questions about Harry Potter, and that's the only way you can actually post and and react and, and stuff like that. Um, we can have that with with decentralized social media. Right. Like I would love to be able to have high quality conversation with people uh, and not be, you know, <laughs> attacked to it with a uh, with civil attacks. Right. With all these bots trying to either farm impressions or scam you or something like that. And so um, that's pretty exciting for me as well. Wow. OK, I've yeah, that last piece I never thought about before. So I'm sort of just mind blown by that. Um, me too. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, because like I think about too, like what is social media actually going to look like? on the decentralized web, you know, like, obviously, I don't think we're going to have just a few main platforms like we have today that everybody is on, I think it'll be a lot more. But also, sometimes I think like, what if it's just, everybody has their own website, and everybody has their own personal token. And uh, you just have, like go to their website, and you tip them, you know, and you get tokens in return, or like some sort of structure like that. Or like you mentioned, you know, like social token gated DAOs and discords, like, do you see do you see decentralized social media just like looking like Discord or Reddit or are people talking about that yet? Or are people like imagining things or having good ideas in that realm yet? Uh, it, it's hard for me to say, honestly. Um, I think when we built or when Web2 started, it was hard to imagine what, you know, social media experience looks like right now. You know, mobile first with all these really beautiful iOS and Android clients. And then kind of like web is an, an, an app, kind of like an, an afterthought compared to, you know, the web first way that we were thinking about 
uh, kind of Web 1.0. And so it's it's hard for me to look at Web 3 and look at what decentralized social media can entail uh, through a Web 2 lens, right? And say it's like, oh, it's going to look like Discord. It's going to look like Reddit or what have you. Web 3 will probably at least start looking like the Web 2 platforms that Web 3 people really respect. And that's, I mean, Discord uh, comes you know, top of mind for me. People love Discord. It's obviously really hard learning curve to kind of, <laughs> kind of go through all the information. And it's definitely information overload, especially if you're new to the space and you, know, you want to join DAO and you join Discord server and you're just like, what? Like, how do I even start? And all the notifications are blaring in your ear. Um, so I, I think it's going to start with that. Of course, Twitter is the watering hole and the proverbial metaverse of crypto right now. So I imagine people are interested in, in, um, in kind of replicating that and, and, uh, and making it more Web3. And there's been definitely some preliminary attempts at doing so. They're kind of, you know, for, for lack of a better word, ghost towns right now. Uh, but that's because it's a, it's a flywheel, right? It's a cold start problem where, uh, I, I, for me, I think there needs to be like really a burning platform for people to move. Twitter's perfectly fine right now. In fact, it's, it's great it, with the addition of spaces. I think it really only augments the, the connectivity that we feel in, in crypto. Only time can tell. We can only speculate. Yeah, 100%. Um, and then speaking of DAOs, that is sort of the hot topic these days on crypto Twitter and everywhere in the crypto space. And so I'm sure there were some probably good conversations about DAOs at ETC. Were there, what, what were some of like the biggest learnings you took away about DAOs? So this conference was really interesting because it took place about a month and a half after Bitcoin Miami. And I think Bitcoin Miami was really the aha moment, at least for me, around like the power of DAOs, especially seeing uh, the power of DAOs in you know real life coordination uh, and, and seeing a lot of my, my fellow DAO members uh, in person. And yeah, you know, six weeks later, I think just so much has honestly developed and, and changed in the DAO space, which is just indicative of how quickly we're innovating in this space. And so ETHCC for me was really like, a showcase of how much DAOs graduated. Uh, and there were so many growing pains for DAOs that like, were at least openly discussed and actively trying to be solved, which was really cool. And so um, there was this awesome talk. Uh, I keep going back to it by Jimmy Ragosa from Claros, um, talking about uh, the growing pains of, of DAOs. And he basically outlined uh, kind of like historical precedents of what it meant to be a pure democracy and how does that relate to the existing governance structure we have right now as literally like as governments, as sovereign nations, right? And so he looked first at, you know, like ancient Greece in pure democracy where basically everyone was voting on everything. And there was like so much eventual voter apathy that, uh, you know, consolidation of power occurred and they, they ended up calling it, I think, like theatrical democracy or something. It was just like a farce. At least right now, it feels similar to DAO members, especially those that don't have a lot of stake. And I think that looks really similar to kind of like corporate governance, like shareholders don't vote on everything, right? Uh, especially small shareholders. Uh, they have an executive team or an operational team that kind of does all the day-to-day -day work that shareholders and even board members don't really need to worry about. Uh, and so he kind of relates it back to you know, corporate governments, but of course, like our existing government of like, okay, there's an executive branch and there's a legislative branch, right? The executive branch, they, you know, in, in the analogy of DAOs, uh, that's kind of like the core team. 
you know, they, they do, they do things, right. They build, uh, they ship code, they make executive decisions on the day-to-day operations of, of the DAO. And then there's a legislative branch, which is, um, you know, kind of like the governance token holders. They're the ones that vote on really big proposals, proposed proposals, um, you know, check the executive branch. And so that was a pretty interesting framing for me. Uh, and then he actually layered in uh, this third piece, which uh, talks about Claros, which is like a essentially like the judicial branch, right? It's like, okay, like, how do you have this other power that's ensuring that these initial two branches aren't abusing their powers or aren't deviating from the mission of the DAO, uh, which I think was a pretty novel uh, assertion to make uh, in, in the in the conference and something I hadn't heard of before because, um, yeah, like judicial, like what does that even mean uh, from a DAO sense? But it, it made a lot of sense in terms of like, okay, like there's a reason why almost every you know, government right now has this, this framing. It's because these checks and balances make a lot of sense. And so there was a ton of learnings uh, just from from DAOs and, and from a governance perspective. Um, and of course, like more and more projects are coming out that make it easier to build DAOs, easier to scale DAOs, like treasury management tools, like different tooling. Gnosis, Safe has, you know, Safe is, is great for Gnosis, but they're also launching a bunch of other really interesting features and products that basically make them like the OS of DAOs. Um, and so that from a tooling perspective, I think it's just becoming richer and richer so that, I mean, eventually the hope is like anyone can make a DAO and not even, you know, touch Ethereum, not even touch code because it's just that intuitive. Um, and, uh, yeah, a lot of these other DAOs have been graduating, like Meta Cartel has grown so much since it started and, uh, Moloch DAO as well. And so, uh, it's just been cool to see just how much has has really been developed in, again, like basically six weeks, like at least in my, in, from my perspective, of course, some of these DAOs have been around for almost a few years now, but um, yeah, just like the rapid pace of innovation just uh, is constantly blowing my mind. Yeah, it really is crazy because I think about like, I mean, obviously I cannot wait for the day when the picture you just painted of like, you don't even have to touch Ethereum to start a DAO and like all the tooling and infrastructure is already there for you. And I think about like, how long is it going to take us to get there? And one thing I've like realized in the crypto space is like, it's just impossible to predict because any concept of time or any concept of like how, how much time it takes to build something, I feel like just does not apply in the crypto space or it's like extremely sped up. Like any, like if you just think about like, okay, in the past, like innovating this type of thing took like X number of years. I feel like in the crypto space, you just have to like, divide that by two or three or even more. <laughs> like, it's just so fast. Um, so crazy to think about. But yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I uh, really like DAOs. I'm, I like to get my, uh, my feet wet and some DAOs and, you know, like sort of experience it firsthand. But I think there's still a lot missing with DAOs right now and a, a lot of, uh, you know, like legislation that's missing, quite frankly. I think a lot of people in crypto like to hate on like rules and regulations, but I really don't think we're gonna get any, we're not, we're not gonna get to like a mainstream level without the rules and regulations. So I think people in crypto need to stop hating on rules and regulations and think about how can we educate policymakers so that they can, you know, create favorable policies for us. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's, it's, it's early. I mean, Vitalik kicked off his talk with a really interesting statement. He said that um, Ethereum has always been about experimental mechanism design based on decentralization and trust minimization. That really resonated with me because it was never about finance. 
right? Uh, it was always about coordination, basically. And so these are all experiments, uh, for, for, for lack of a better word. But experiments eventually lead to true long-standing innovation. And uh, we're early days and, you know, with innovation needs sound regulation and regulatory frameworks. And so, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just early right now. We need, to, we need to hit like a nice stable state and then get a good framework around it from a legal perspective for us to really, uh, you know, drive a lot of mainstream impact. Yeah, 100%. And on that note, uh, I want to talk about finance. <laughs> so DeFi is obviously a huge thing. I'm sure it was talked about a lot at ECC. Uh, what were some of the main topics in DeFi that, that you heard at the conference? Yeah, the, the main conversation was still around, uh, you know, how do we drive forward, I guess, like mainstream adoption uh, for DeFi? And, you know, that, that goes around, I think, a couple of different uh, problem spaces. First thing was just like user experience. And so we had a lot of really amazing designers give workshops around, okay, like how do we really even build for, how do we even really build for someone who's not crypto native? And I think that's really interesting because it, there's different design decisions that need to be made in order to actually onboard people, right? Of course, the main conversation that always comes up is, okay, you have someone who's not crypto native, they go to adapt. Oh, you need to log in with your non-custodial wallet. Okay, like what? What does that even mean, right? Uh, like that is the, almost the hardest hurdle, and and the vast majority of where dropout comes from comes from a funnel perspective uh, for these DApps. Another piece which was really interesting because it was it wasn't really driven by designers, but actually from the core protocol team uh, was a new EIP called thirty seventy four, uh, which basically talks uh, a little bit about UX improvements from actually the protocol level. And so one thing was you know changing. Uh, token approvals, and so no longer would you have to approve, uh, you know, tokens. You know that random kind of button you need to press before you can interact with a lot of different uh, protocols, right? Like, oh, approve for this ERC twenty smart contract, or approve, you know, this DAP smart contract before you can interact with it, uh, which is, you know, not a huge barrier, but definitely uh, can be helpful for a lot of folks in terms of drop off in usage. Um, and another thing was something called social recovery, which is baked into the protocol, which is like, there needs to be an on-chain way to actually recover people's keys, right? Like if you have mainstream people coming, you know, let's say they get a non-custodial wallet, they have their seed phrase, they don't really know what to do with it, right? Like that's kind of a weird, uh, weird concept for a lot of people to grok. And so if there's a way for people to uh, actually uh, have some sort of recovery method uh, for these seed phrases, like that would be... Um, really helpful, and, and, and the fact that's happening from an EIP perspective is like, I mean, like that's that, that's pretty big. So that was kind of a, a big core piece of the conversation from a DeFi perspective, and of course, you know, all these talks around, uh, you know, the next forefront of, of DeFi for these blue chip protocols, uh, you know, for Curve, for for Uniswap, Sushi launched a new Dex product they called Trident, which is basically. Um, you know, we don't need to get into this, but it's basically um, a lot of different DEXs. <laughs> That's the best way to put it. Uh, it has concentrated liquidity like Uniswap V3. It has, um, you know, different balance pools like Balancer. And so it's not even pretty interesting. It's really interesting. It's, uh, it's definitely something that caught me by surprise. That is, yeah, kind of a, in a nutshell, what's, what's happening in kind of the main DeFi space. Uh, and then the secondary DeFi space is kind of like the, I'd say, like the merging of DeFi and NFTs, which has kind of been happening in the peripheries already with, you know, NFT20, NFT5, NFTX, 
as liquidity pools and as lending. Uh, but now it's becoming, I think, more and more of a mainstream conversation, especially given the huge boom in, in NFTs recently. Uh, and so you have these new wave of protocols. Uh, one is called Genie that I thought was really cool. It's basically a DEX aggregator uh, for NFTs. And so they'll search liquidity on NFT20, NFTX, and also OpenSea, Rarible, Foundation, what have you, uh, in search of the best fill order, right? Which is like much needed in the space. Uh, and then there's another protocol called Bunchy. Bunchy is really interesting because it provides some sort of lending protocol for previously insanely illiquid assets as NFTs. And so uh, I think their inaugural pool wants to have CryptoPunks, which of course, if you're a punks owner, you know that these are expensive and uh, you know you want to hold it for a long time or it's relatively illiquid and you, you want to be able to get liquidity in order to you know pay the bills uh, and, and, and do other kind of fun DeFi stuff uh, with your NFTs. That stuff is really cool. Like merging different aspects of crypto, like merging DeFi and NFTs is a super cool thing. I also really like the protocols that are doing cool new things with NFTs. And so, so far, we've really only seen like, you know, like you can buy an art NFT, for instance, or you can buy like a single NFT. But like one of my favorite projects right now is uh, Charged Particles with we had Ben Lakoff from Charged Particles on the podcast in the past. But he talks about how like with Charged Particles, you can do things like you can basically put a bunch of NFTs in a basket and then you can time lock it or you can slow release it and like do all these cool things with it. And I'm really excited to see, you know, what else people develop uh, with like cool new ways to handle NFTs to like um, financialize NFTs to just like do all these cool new things with it. Yeah, definitely. Can I, can I add something on, on NFTs yeah. quickly? Mm-hmm. This is something that I forgot because I don't te- kind of call this DeFi, but on the NFT space, fractionalization is, is, was a huge topic uh, during the conference. You know, I met Andy from, from Fractional Art and Fractional Art actually just had their launch uh, a couple of days ago, uh, post-conference. Uh, but essentially, you know, people want exposure to NFTs and uh, they're either a like really unaffordable at this point, right? Like a CryptoPunk is literally $50,000 or they want exposure to a kind of a basket of, of NFTs uh, because they don't want to take, you know, a liquid risk exposure on like a certain, you know, type kind of NFT. And so an EG would be like, oh, I like art blocks as a project, but I don't know which collection I want, right? Like, I don't know if I want a Dreams or, you know, Chromie Squiggle or something. And so uh, fractionalization is really interesting because now people can just have a kind of a tokenized exposure uh, to these collections and they have fractional ownership, right? And and you can do novel things with it, like renting out a punk or something. And so Jenny Dow uh, was a DAO that was kind of at the forefront of this at the conference. Uh, They basically printed all these t-shirts that said Jenny Dow on it and the back was uh, the punk that they owned. Uh, And I thought it was pretty ingenious because, you know, people get free swag. They walk around the punk, people wonder whose punk that is. They go online and see his Jenny Dow's. It's it's more, it's even more kind of viral marketing, uh, but it also builds the value of the punk, right? Like, um, like IRL virality actually builds value for these digital assets, which I think is like a pretty interesting way of uh, economic design that is different from Web2. Yeah, for sure. We had uh, Ben, Benjamin Ramo from Jenny Dow on the podcast, and he was talking all about that. We had um, Uniquely on too, that's like the platform that it's built on uh, that helps like all of these 
other protocols or individuals fractionalize their NFTs. I, I, I love that. I think that's the future. Uh, one other question I had for you. I know this is something something that I thought of when you were talking about like the new EIPs and stuff is like, and DAOs too, is like one of the biggest problems right now with DAOs and with the space in general is this problem of, you've got all these people that want to contribute their skills and talents, but there's not a great way to pay them out for these sort of like public goods that they're helping to build. Uh, and I know that's something you brought up when we were speaking earlier about like retroactive funding and, you know, um, different ways to basically fund public goods. If somebody wants to contribute to an EIP, they can get paid. If somebody wants to contribute to a DAO, they can get paid. What are like people talking about or building out in that arena right now? Uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. And I'm really glad you asked. Uh, so retroactive funding has been kind of a known topic for, I want to say, a few years now. Uh, but now it's hitting a lot of um, kind of mainstream conversation, at least within the community, based on kind of two two catalysts. One is there's a blog post that the Optimism team uh, posted, I think, a couple of days ago. Um, the second thing was, of course, that was uh, a, a huge component of Vitalik's talk. Again, that was really just a, a, an awesome talk. I encourage everyone to, to watch it. It's on YouTube. Uh, but I think it set the stage for a lot of conversations uh, for the rest of the conference. Just because when Vitalik speaks, a lot of people listen. He has such a unique uh, and high-level view of what the Ethereum ecosystem needs. And so for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, retroactive funding is essentially uh, paying projects afterwards uh, in the future. And so people, uh, and so uh, kind of the barrier for people to do a lot of projects that don't have built-in monetization or even a path to monetization uh, is essentially the uncertainty that you know, they would get compensated for their time. Things like public goods usually fall by the wayside be because of this uh, basically because of this coordination failure. Um, and so what Vitalik talked about in his talk and what the Optimism team talked about was essentially doing retroactive funding where um, people can look back at what really successful projects or impactful projects for the ecosystem and essentially compensate them for that impact uh, in some sort of proportional way. And so Vitalik kind of took that a step further and said there should be a DAO within the Ethereum community that essentially funds these projects. And the EG that he pointed to was actually EIP 1559, which took several years for anyone to even care about it, right? And now that it's coming out next week, uh, everyone loves it, right? Of course, it's interesting for uh, you know e Ether tokenomics. It's interesting from a UX perspective where people aren't gonna get destroyed uh, by rising gas costs and they have more certainty on their transaction getting filled. But yeah, that was something that no one was really interested in until someone randomly read the proposal uh, and funded it through quadratic funding on Gitcoin. Um, or there's a campaign to, to do that funding. Yeah, so retroactive funding is really interesting because now we can actually um, start thinking about building public goods that can essentially accelerate the development of the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, and even broadly, it can accelerate any sort of public good or service that can be done broadly because now people have a financial incentive. and. Uh, the way that Vitalik put it was really interesting. He said, this is a way to essentially build entrepreneurship from a public good perspective, right? Like people are taking a asymmetric bet to build a public good because they know that they can be uh, financially rewarded uh, from a DAO uh, in the future if it's successful. And so we can see a lot of other EIPs coming that are going to be really impactful. Of course, we can probably see a lot of more novel scaling solutions or other kind of big problem spaces that are happening in Ethereum get solved. Uh, through this funding mechanism. And so 
uh, yeah, this is something I'm, I'm really excited about. And I think everyone was, was kind of buzzing about it. And, uh, you know, when I, when I went to the hackathon, a lot of people were talking about using this mechanism to essentially give back to the community or give back, you know, broadly have impact in the world using some sort of, you know, combination of uh, retroactive funding and also like NFTs attestation and signaling. There's you no, know, I mean, the sky's limited. It's, it, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Like in every other aspect of our lives, like we always pay for the thing after we get it. If I go to like the hair salon, for instance, like I get a haircut and then I pay for it. Or like if I go to the store and I buy something and like pick up the product off the shelf and then I go buy for it, I wouldn't like pay you like a bunch of money and say like, hey, Jimmy, here's a bunch of money. I trust that you're going to like send me a PlayStation next week. Yeah, totally. Why would I do that? Like, what if you don't send me anything? You just got all this money and you run away with it, right? The only time in our society today where we sort of pay people in advance is like for employment. Like you get hired to a company to do a job and then you get paid to do it before you actually do anything. And it's like TBD whether you're going to do it or not. Like it almost makes more sense. Like just just do it. Like do what you say you're going to do and I'll pay you for it. Yeah, I think that comes with the maturation of the space, right? Like other EGs are like very, I think like indicative of just like the uh, the nascency of, of this space. So it's like one is like ICOs, right? Especially in like 2017, it was like, hey, give me 10, 20 million dollars. And yeah, I'm going to build this coin. We're like, yeah, I am down for that. Another thing is NFT projects, right? They're like, hey, like here's an NFT project. We might build a metaverse game with these characters. And people were like, yeah, I'm definitely going to do that. Like here's $50 million, right? So uh, yeah, it's, 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 I think it's a lot more intuitive to kind of flip it into this more retroactive sense. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool. All right. Well, that was awesome stuff. Um, any final thoughts before we wrap up? I think this was a lot of really good stuff for anybody who wasn't able to make it to Paris for the conference. I feel like I was almost there. I'm going to go watch Metallic's <laughs> talk and then I, I think I'm good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just one final thought, like I always love being in person for these events. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, slowly more of these are are happening again as jurisdictions move out of COVID restrictions. There's just so much magic and it's great to see the passion in real life. That's something that I personally just love about the space is just like, you know, people can talk about this for forever uh, ad nauseum. And there's there's real passion here. And I, I struggled to, uh, you know, find another point in my life where I was surrounded by so many smart people talking about something so passionately. And so it just makes me more excited to build. Yeah, hundred percent. I love hearing that. I give all my podcast guests a chance to plug themselves at the end. So I'm going to extend that same offering to you. If people want to pepper you with more questions after this, where, where can they find you? Sure. Yeah. So I am obsessed with Twitter. Uh, and so my handle is at zero X Jim and J I M. So feel free to DM me, DM me, uh, DMs are always open. If you guys have questions about Ethereum, about uh, ETHCC, about anything really, uh, I'm always happy to, always happy to have a conversation. Zero X Jim, AKA Ox Jim, the cow, <laughs> however people wanna, wanna call it. Another thing too, is we have uh, opportunities for people to contribute too, right? If they want on our Discord. Yeah, definitely. So if you're interested ever uh, in exploring unstoppable domains, using a domain, uh, integrating with us in your app, um, please go to our Discord. You can find the link 
in our homepage at unstoppabledomains.com. It's also uh, linked on our Twitter, I believe. Um, so uh, we have uh, basically 24-7 support for any questions. We're always just talking about uh, the future of identity and NFTs uh, on our Discord. So uh, yeah, please join join the Discord. It's uh, It's a fun time there. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet community. I'll th- thanks, Jimmy, for building that out. You basically like build it all out from the ground up. So um, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jimmy, for taking the time to tell us about ECC today. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.